in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so find that in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 again tonight, and then we'll get uh, hopefully through this passage uh, this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's read verses 1 through 9. You follow along as we read it. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice how often he says Jesus Christ. He is the center of this church, as we'll see as we go through it. Let's pray uh, this evening. Lord, we thank you tonight for the fact that we have been sanctified, we have been redeemed, that we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, uh, we pray that as we go through this epistle, that we would learn much about what it means to be uh, the church in a, a world that is often against Christ. And Lord, help us, even when there is worldliness um, around us, help us not to be worldly in the church. And Lord, help us to uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to be uh, committed to the principles of Scripture that we might be the church that you would want us to be. So, Lord, tonight, once again, as we go through uh, this section of Scripture, that, that we could uh, know what it means and how we need to apply it. And, Lord, help us with that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is really God's letter to a worldly church. Corinth itself was a very worldly place. It was the sin city of the ancient world. The young Christians in Corinth had a very difficult time being different from the world. And most of the abuses and problems that we see in this church came directly from the pagan culture of that city. And in light of this worldly influence, Paul began by making sure that these new Christians understood that in the eyes of God, they were, in fact, saints, that they were sanctified in Christ Jesus. And as they looked at the condition of their church body and many of the practices in their fellowship, it was really difficult for them to see themselves as saints. It was difficult for them to 
see themselves as being separate from the world and set apart for God. It was difficult to see themselves as being like vessels in the temple set apart for the service of God alone. It was hard for them to see themselves as holy. But Paul assured them that positionally they were in Christ Jesus. And Paul acknowledged their geographical position in that worldly city, but he contrasted that with their spiritual position of being in Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul addresses in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1 deals primarily with positional truth. He's not really dealing here with their actual behavior. He's going to obviously deal with that later. But he's going to come back and say, now now that we have established your spiritual position in Christ, now let's work to see if we can get your behavior to match up with that. And practical righteousness really should begin to match the imputed righteousness in the life of a believer as we grow and mature. And so, first of all, he's dealing with positional righteousness, who they are in Christ. But then that, as we grow, should begin to come closer together. Our practical righteousness should begin to match our positional righteousness. And in fact, really reminding ourselves of who we really are in Christ should really be one of the strongest deterrents to sin in our lives. Remembering our position can help us improve in our practice. It is extremely critical, I think, for us to always keep our position and our practice in proper perspective. Saints do not always act saintly. are Are you aware of that? Did you know that? Saints don't always act saintly, but that does not mean we are any less saints. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian, but there are Christians who sometimes act carnally. John MacArthur tells the story of a pastor's son who was arrested for a crime and put in jail, and the pastor happened to be playing golf. That was his first mistake. He, was, he happened to be playing golf with some church leaders when the call came that his son had been arrested. And he really could not believe that it was his son. He thought it had to be a mistake of some kind. And so he took those church leaders with him to the police station, and he was extremely embarrassed to discover that it really was his son who had been arrested. And over and over again, those men kept saying, having a father like yours, how could you ever have done such a thing? But listen, no matter how unlike his father that boy acted, it did not change the fact that he was still his son. That never changes. Our position, who we are in Christ, never changes, even when we don't act very saintly. 
spiritually, we are, in fact, children of God, even though we don't always act that way. We don't always act godly. In fact, we can at times act very ungodly. But Paul really hammers on this in the introduction to this letter. That these Corinthian Christians are truly saints, even though they live in a very worldly place and there's much worldliness in this Corinthian church. And by the way, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. And I have memorized the very first word of all 13 of Paul's letters. Are you ready? Here it is. Paul. Are you impressed? Paul. As you are probably aware, the Greeks had a very different way of writing letters than we do. Most of us don't write letters anymore. I mean, you know, it's now it's digital. But when they wrote a letter in those days, they did not wait until the very end to sign the letter. They put the name of the person who wrote it and who it was written to right at the very beginning of the letter. And I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that's a bad idea at all. Because it would sure save a lot of time and help you know whether you want to read it or not. Right? You know who it's from? But Paul put his name right at the beginning of this letter. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. John Piper points out that in Paul's 13 letters, he almost always begins by telling us who he is in relation to God and who we are in relation to God. This is very different from what you see on television, he says. Automobile commercials want you to think of your life in relation to things you have. Beer commercials want you to think of your life in relation to the brotherhood at the pub. Uh, Life insurance commercials want you to think of your life in relation to your family with Touching scenes of childhood and graduation and marriage and first uh, home and first child. He says a hundred soaps and deodorants and shampoos and foods want you to think of your life in relation to your body. But the Bible is relentless in this one thing. It calls us back again and again Not to deny the existence of things like cars or friends at the cafe or families or our own bodies. But to give these things their true meaning in relation to God. The Bible defines everything in relation to God. Everything has its true significance or insignificance in relation to God. 
Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word saint, but that word really means one who is set apart. We looked at that a little bit this morning. It does not really have anything to do with your behavior. That is a positional term. It is a term of identity. Paul said, this is who you really are in Christ Jesus. You're a saint. Now, this was really important, especially in Corinth, because as you look at this church, they seem to be anything but saints. And Paul was writing to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's not talking about progressive sanctification there. That's talking about their position. Positionally, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And here, in this context, the word sanctified is used as a synonym of justify, like we saw this morning. And, of course, the word sanctified literally means to be set apart. It's a word that was used to describe the sacred vessels in the temple that were used only for God. And Paul was saying that they were just as much set apart for God as those vessels in the temple were. And even though I'm sure they often wondered if they were even children of God at all. And they looked around their congregation and they thought, my goodness, how could Paul call us saints? And it's fairly common for Christians today to feel the same way. Most Christians would never consider themselves saints. We don't usually go around calling each other saint so-and-so. In the sense of, you know, sometimes that idea of sainthood is like being without sin, like we're, we're perfect. And, and some Christians have even doubted if they're truly saved or not. So we need that point of identity. But we have to remember that our salvation is not based on feelings. It's not based on our performance. It is based on Christ and his finished work on the cross. And by the way, notice the first phrase of verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. This was their geographical position. In a way, Paul is contrasting their geographical position with their spiritual position. These believers were at Corinth, but they were in Jesus Christ. And they're physical location was the ancient city of Corinth, but their spiritual location was in Christ Jesus. And that, of course, is the more important designation. It is much more important to be in Jesus Christ. But we can't forget our physical location either, Because in this case, it did have an impact on them, and many times our culture around us does affect us. So we have to be aware of that. And Corinth, as I said last week, was really the vanity fair of the ancient world. It was the sin capital of the world. It was the place where every kind of hustler or get-rich-quick schemer or Wheeler and dealer in the world would go to try to make his fortune. This was the place where everyone would uh, travel through. Everyone had to go through Corinth. And so you would see many people on the streets 
barking their wares, trying to make their fortune. It was a city full of vice and greed and exploitation. What a great place for a brand new congregation. What a wonderful place for brand new believers in Jesus Christ. This was where these believers lived. This is the atmosphere that surrounded them. And it was in this kind of atmosphere that God declared them to be saints. God had set them apart from the world. They were no longer to be like their society. They were not to try to blend in with the world, but instead they were to live and act different from the world's. We are to be different from our world as well. There are too many who claim to be Christians who are no different from those in the world. Too often that's the case. There are too many Christians who are engaged in the very same practices that the world is engaged in. And statistics over and again show that in many cases there's very little difference between the, the behavior of Christians compared with the behavior of non-Christians. Many times the divorce rate is about the same. Many of our business practices are just about the same. Uh, we tell the same jokes other people tell. We watch the same movies. We read the same literature. We, we listen to the same music. We, you know, we, we play the same video games. We, we have the same uh, vices and habits that other people have in the world. And oftentimes, our churches look just like the things that we see around us in the secular world. In fact, some churches are intentionally trying to look that way. To be just like the world so the world will think, hey, aren't we cool? We're just like you. You can come in and be at home here. That is not what God intended. God wants us to be different from the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have all passed away. Behold, everything has become new. We're new in Christ. We're different. We're set apart for him. In 2 Corinthians 6.17, it says, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. You know, some of us think that it's hard to live for Christ in our workplaces, and many times that is the case. We think it's tough to live for Christ in our schools or in our offices or in our neighborhoods. But listen, it was tough to live for Jesus Christ in Corinth. And it is tough to live for Christ anywhere in our world today. But when God saves you, he gives you the ability to live for him in whatever setting you may find yourself. And we might point to certain places around and say, you know, this place is more difficult to be a Christian. This place might be harder to, to live for Christ. But listen, it's hard everywhere. It's hard here in this community where we live. But God wants us to be different. He wants us to live for him. 
in this world. Paul acknowledged their geographical position, but he contrasted it with their spiritual position. Paul said, you may be in Corinth, but never forget that first and foremost, you are in Christ. By the way, that was Paul's favorite phrase. He he loved to talk about being in Christ Jesus. Uh, That phrase appears 160 times in Paul's writings. I like to sign my letters that way, in Christ. What a tremendous point of identification. This was Paul's spiritual reference point that reminded him of who he really was. And it should be ours as well. Listen, friend, no matter what kind of environment you may be in, you may be the only Christian where you work, you may be the only believer there in that office, but if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can make a difference for him because you are in Christ Jesus. You might be in a difficult family situation. Maybe you're the only believer in your family. You may be the only Christian in your, the whole, your whole company or maybe on your whole block. But whatever pressures you may face to conform to the ways of the world, just remember, these believers have the same kind of pressure. And Paul admonished them to be different and to be separate from the world. We are saints. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are different from the world. We must not allow the world to squeeze us into its molds or to be unique. Now, keep in mind that we're not talking about practice just yet. We're talking about position here. It's, it's kind of like this. Um, Suppose you go to a football game, and the public address announcer begins to announce the starting lineups, okay? He calls out a name and a number and says, Jones, number 87, playing offensive tackle, okay? Now, at that point, all you know about that player is what his position is. You know his name and what his position is. He may be the sorriest left tackle that has ever put on a football jersey, or he might be an All-American. You don't know. All you know is who he is and what his position is. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's telling them their position in Christ. Now, later on, we're going to find out that these Corinthian saints weren't acting very saintly in a practical sense. There was incest in the body. They were suing each other in pagan courts. They were abusing just about every aspect of church life. There were sharp divisions in the church. There was a party spirit. There were cliques everywhere. So Paul is addressing these issues. He's going to deal with these one at a time. But he has to start first by saying, no, first and foremost, know who you are in Christ. Now, in Ephesians 5, 
The Bible says that we're to live as it becomes saints. In other words, our practice ought to match up with our position. Those who are saints positionally should start to act like saints practically. Unfortunately, however, many of the Corinthians were living far below their position. And the truth of the matter is there are many Christians today of which we would have to say the same thing. And far too often we are like the prodigal son in that we are living far below who we really are. And not only do we often live far below our position, we also often live far below our prosperity. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm talking about prosperity in a spiritual sense. Not only does God want us to know who we are, he also wants us to know what we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, we need to pay special attention to verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. The word enriched there is a word from which we get our English word, plutocrat. A plutocrat was a very wealthy person. So what Paul is doing here is he's going into the treasure house of the believer, and he's picking up a couple of bags of the riches and spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. And he's bringing them out, and he's putting them on display as reminders of the incredible spiritual wealth that we possess as Christians. So what I want to do with the rest of the time tonight is to take a look at these bags of treasure, if you will, that Paul puts on display for these Corinthian believers. And I want us to really push and see if we can get all the way down to verse 9. How many of you believe we can do that? Okay. Bag number one is found in verse 4. Verse 4, look at it. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. The first bag of treasure is the grace of God. Paul is saying this treasure is part of what you received when you received Jesus Christ. This is part of your salvation. What a wonderful thing the grace of God is. Amen? It is God's unmerited favor given to you without any thought of anything in return. This is literally super magnanimous giving. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the hand of a beggar reaching out to accept a gift from a king. In fact, it is like a beggar receiving the kingdom as an inheritance when he is absolutely unworthy to receive it. J. Wilbur Chapman 
often told the testimony given by a certain man in one of his meetings. This was years ago. But he would say, I got off at Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. And for a year, I begged on the streets for a living. One day, I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I've found you. I've found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. And then he said this, think of it. I was a tramp. I stood there begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. What a wonderful illustration of the way God longs to treat us if we will only receive his amazing grace. Now we see in verse 5 that it is the grace of God that had enriched them in speech and all knowledge. And in verse 7 that they were lacking in no gift. They had all the spiritual gifts that they needed. In fact, the word gift in verse 7 is a word that comes from the word grace. This is bag number two. This is going to be one of the main themes of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which is the grace gifts. Have you ever heard the word charismatic? I know you have. Well, you probably have also heard the word charisma used. So-and-so has a lot of charisma, etc. All of these words are words that come from the word grace in the Greek. It means grace gift. So you see, God gives us everything we need as Christians. He gives us his grace to begin with, and then he gives us his grace gifts, spiritual gifts. In fact, uh, he calls us first by his grace. Then he gives us the grace gifts that we need to serve him and to live for him. And notice what he says to these Corinthian believers in verse 7. You're not lacking in any grace gift. Here's a church that had all the spiritual gifts they needed for the church to grow as God desired for it to. And verse 5 says, They had been enriched in everything. Paul said, in essence, don't think that your problems are the result of not having the grace needed or the gifts needed because you are in an extremely wealthy church as far as spiritual wealth is concerned. You have been enriched with Christ. You have been given everything you need. He's saying, you believers... There at Corinth should not focus on what you don't have. You have all you need to be all God wants you to be. What you need to do is quit chasing after what you don't have and begin exercising what you do have in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is still very much applicable to us today. 
I mean, how often do we focus on what we don't have and end up not even being able to enjoy what we do have? Or how often do we fall into the trap of thinking that we're limited in some way and we can't be all God wants us to be because we don't have certain things? God says, you have everything you need. Everything you need. Biblically speaking, spiritually speaking, God has given us everything we need. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We, have, we, we, don't need, we don't have anything else that we need. He has supplied all that we need. And this is Paul's message to these Corinthian Christians. Specifically, Paul told them they were enriched, first of all, in all speech and in all knowledge. Now, the kind of speech that is intended here, I believe, is the ability to communicate God's truth. And Paul is going to have a lot to say about speech and the spiritual gifts of speech later on in this letter. He's going to show that utilizing the spiritual gift of prophecy to clearly communicate God's word is far superior to the gift of unknown tongues, which was a legitimate spiritual gift during the days of the apostles, but is no longer for our day and time. But he's going to say to them and show them that the gift of clearly teaching God's word, the gift of prophecy, is far more valuable than the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues was given for a specific purpose as a gift primarily to unbelieving Israel. But Paul's point in chapter 14, when we get to it, is that it pales, this gift, the gift of tongues, pales in comparison to the gift of prophecy by which the truth of God is clearly communicated in a known tongue and can be clearly understood by everyone. He's also going to say a lot about the gift of knowledge. In fact, prophecy and knowledge he says, are going to continue and be very important until the perfect thing comes. Now, we're going to get to that later on. But while tongues will cease, the other two gifts, which are beneficial to believers, prophecy and knowledge, will continue until their purpose is fulfilled, until the perfect thing comes. But what Paul is really saying here to these Corinthian believers is that there is not anything that is essential for Christian living and their spiritual well-being that God has not already supplied them. He's saying you don't have to go out looking for anything else. You don't have to search for something more. You don't have to fall into this trap that so often is the case in many, many churches. Christians just continually going after more and more. No, you have everything you need. He's saying you don't have to look for something else. Colossians 2.10 says, In Him you have been made complete. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have all we need. And notice what he says at the end of verse 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, just get busy using the spiritual gifts that God has given you. And all the time, keep your eyes on the return of Christ. This is just like our young people who count down the days until school is over, right? Or some of us who watch the clock on Friday afternoon until we can clock out. We're to continually be watching for the return of Christ. And as you seek to employ what God has given you by His grace, those grace gifts, you're to seek to be all God wants you to be, but all at the same time keeping your eyes peeled on the eastern sky, waiting for His return. And when He returns, verse 8 says, He shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul was <clears throat> affirming these believers in, the Lord Jesus would continue to confirm them by the Spirit right up until the time that they are presented blameless before the Father. And he does this very same thing for us as well. What a great word of comfort and assurance that is. So we see these two bags of treasure. But notice last of all, yeah, and see, we're going to make it to verse 9, you doubters. Notice last of all, bag number 3. Verse 9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, look at that first phrase again. God is faithful faithful. That is one of the greatest statements in all the Word of God. In fact, that is probably the most important fact in this entire universe. God is faithful. And everything we believe and everything upon which our hope is based is built upon the faithfulness of God. And the Bible makes it absolutely clear that God is completely trustworthy you can build your life and your and trust your eternity to his faithfulness in fact that is the basis of our salvation it is through the faithfulness of god that we were called into fellowship with his son jesus christ our lord in the words of ray stedman this is the key verse of first corinthians the rest of the letter, he says, centers around this verse. It is a statement that God had called them to a very important relationship. And by implication, here at the very beginning of this letter, we learn that this is the reason for all of the problems in the Corinthian church. They had not understood the implications of their calling and the relationship that they personally and individually had with Jesus Christ himself. Instead, he says, as we see, beginning with the very next verse, the apostle has to deal with things like divisions and scandals and lawsuits and immorality and drunkenness and quarreling and with much understanding of the truth about idols and demons and various other things and even the abuse 
of the spiritual gifts. But they were truly saints, and God is always faithful. These are the certainties we can count on. His calling is an effectual calling. And we are forever in fellowship with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these incredible words of encouragement and affirmation. Lord, we thank you that we are reminded of who we are, that we are in Christ Jesus. And wherever we may be in the world, we must remember our spiritual identity. And Lord, our desire is to see our practical walk with you line up with who we are. We want to be saints, not just positionally, but also practically. And Lord, we ask that you would help us with that. We desire that. Help us to be the kind of church you want us to be. Help us to learn from this problem, church, and that we can uh, be all that you intend for us. So, Lord, we again uh, thank you for this truth tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.